and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and joined, as always, by my good friend, colleague, and fellow coach, John Marcus. John, what is going on, my man? Hey, just showing up to give the people what they want. As always, that that is what we're here for. That is what we're here for. Coaching, track, running nerds. Get ready, because we've got another exciting episode. Before that, though, we've got to tell you about our Running Scholar program and the Scholar Clubhouse. This is your one-stop shop, your coaching mentor platform, where you get John and I's expertise, expertise from people we've interviewed. We've got a whole entire course on Renato Canova's training, which he just graciously said, you know what? You guys are doing great things. Here are literally hundreds. This is why I love Canova, man. He's the best coach, arguably, in marathoning in the last decade. And he's just like, here, I don't have time to disseminate all this information. You guys do it. I just, he didn't even ask us for anything. He's like, just put it out there because I want everyone to get better. Like, and that's a coach's coach. He's like, not just caring about his people. But he's caring about the health of the entire competitive community. So hats off to Kanoa. He's the man. Yeah. I mean, it's very generous. It's been great. We're trying to do it service and just put it out there in the world. So if you, you're interested in that, check it out. And as always, we've got our Scholar Clubhouse, which is our behind-the-scenes chat, connector, all that stuff for organizing another great you know, conversation a, going on this week people talking about double runs the you know value of that how to insert it in training like it's like i said it's just cool to see the brain trust of the scholar community going back and forth having clear concise intelligent dialogue that helps people who are actually engaged in it as well as us observers to kind of rethink or reorganize or level up so i mean to me that is just man every week you're not a scholar every week you're missing out on some very very insightful conversations going on in the clubhouse so don't delay 100%. don't delay you know what i love is you know i i posted this um this article by marius back in on the ingerbritson training and it just naturally evolved where coaches are like hey let's get a zoom together let's let's discuss this let's go in depth and that's what it's about man like you know you find something that that excites us coaches and let's have that conversation so that we we don't have to wait until we're all together at a convention again and can go deep. Like, let's nerd out now. Exactly. We space. have the outlet to just start having the dialogue. And the interpretation is the key, right? Like, that's what you and I do on this podcast. We try to interpret things because, as we know, like all training is an experiment. No one knows with certainty what the outcome will be with for any type of training activity or loading phase or period we have a good guess we have a good approximation but different interpretations and perspectives yield a deeper understanding of potential outcomes and direction of outcomes and that's why i love hearing about high school coaches interpretations of hey how do i take the learning of say canova athletes in the marathon and apply it to my jv frosh in the 5k cross country right that's a tricky uh, interpretation and translation. So that's what the beauty of the scholar program is, and especially the clubhouse, is it allows that translation to happen in real time with different people at different levels and a variety of experience for different you know, years uh, and decades even. 
give their interpretation and translation about how to effectively apply these novel or interesting or new training methods to their athlete population, which might be your athlete population. Yeah, spot on. So let's get into today's topic, which is the down week, the essential training ingredient you're probably missing. Something I didn't understand for probably my whole running career and maybe my first five to 10 years of my coaching career. But now I understand how darn important it is and don't, I I never leave a a training plan without it. (laughs) Let's put it that way. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell a story to get us started. Early on in my coaching career, when I was coaching high school, you know, I was talking to a really successful high school coach who'd done it for years and years and years. And we were talking about how athletes sometimes just struggle. You know, you, you get these athletes, you're coaching high school kids, they're getting better, they're racing every week. So you get like this feedback um, because that's the high school season. And then... Sometimes these athletes just start to look a little sluggish or they stop progressing and they start going the wrong way and all this stuff. And it happens to every high school team, no matter how well designed your, your quote unquote training program is. And, you know, we were just sitting there talking and it's like, oh, yeah. See that all the time. Here's what I do. I give them a down week. And I remember just sitting there at the time being like, down week like this is your solution and and it's just like yeah man just just have them jog around a little bit you know for the week just jog around maybe do some strides and and that's about it just you know jog enjoy it slow easy just down week and it's like the more severe it is the easier you go and here was this coach again who's like won state championships and all this stuff and blah blah blah. And at the time I was like, you know, this was my first year or two uh, out of college and coaching and and I'm just like, man, that's such a simplistic answer. Like there's no like, oh, let's try this magic workout or like no, they need to do more like tempo runs or more hill sprints or more, you know, do this or ice bath every 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 day it was just like down week and at first i was a little skeptical but then you know i'd run into a kid who would do this and i'd do it and it would work (laughs) and and then, uh, then i was like okay this is the down week is now now a thing um and I, I always think back to that because I'm just sitting here. I'm like, this is such a simple, elegant solution. But it's something that we often neglect because it's sitting there being like, oh, like what? No, that's like too simple. That's too easy. Like that's like the high school coach like lesson. There has to be like some complex understand underlying understanding going on. But what I've come to learn, but if you step back, it fits perfectly in how we handle stress and adaptation, right? We've got to stress ourselves, then we got to recover. And if we don't recover, we don't absorb the training. Or if you love the, the you know, fitness fatigue model of adaptation, you stress yourself to get fitness, but you got to clear out the damn fatigue in order to express that fitness. And it's such a simple concept. But we forget it, neglect it, 
overlook it and try and get fancy to squeeze more training in because we think the training is the thing when we when really the thing is the training serves one purpose but you don't express it unless you you get out of the way and absorb it yeah i you know i posted something on twitter and it was like we gotta remember the workout is the tool that creates damage and breakdown because a highly stressful event that puts your body in a necessary or prime state to then go through the process of adaptive reconstruction, right? So that can rebuild and supercompensate and get more robust and better than it was prior to that stressful event called the workout. However, the problem is we have this Protestant work dilemma, right? Which is essentially like why we won't stop, right? The Protestant work ethic values effort and personal sacrifice. But we got to remember, just because something takes up a lot of time or is really hard does not automatically make it important enough value. <laughs> and this is the thing that hurts our heads as coaches because especially our era, Steve, and I think it's more now than ever with the proliferation and gamification of training with the Garmin's and, you know, GPS's and tracking every mile, every step, every pace. We think there's this correlation between, all right, I got to run 80 miles a week, every week, or else I, you know, will magically dissolve into a pool of unfit mush. When the reality is the cumulative load can create a micro damage that starts to spiral and become more micro damaging. And the reality is most athletes in endurance sports are probably under recovered more than they are under trained. And that under recovery is the thing that is limiting their ability to perform and express at the level that we as coaches or trainers think they should. But yet we think it's not an under recovery problem. It's an under training problem. So our answer nine times out of 10, our bias is the process and work ethic bias. Do more work in this direction, more strides, more lifting, more tempos, more miles, more longer runs. It's like, no, take more recovery so you can get more rebuilding of your broken down tissue mass. Yeah. I, I, I love that framing. It's we don't have, we have an under recovery train. Probably. We do. It really is. And I mean, it's the high horse like you and Brad got on and peak performance. And still, we got to beat the drum loud on because everyone shows off their training and like their breakdown. But it's like, no, it's really like who can recover. And that's the whole point of performance enhancing drugs, right? It's like they expedite the recovery process. That's their purpose. I mean, you know. You know, it reminds me, you mentioned peak performance, and I'm going to go off of the sports tangent because we talked about this in peak performance, but it's such a brilliant example that I think translates over to sport is there was this great study on this uh, elite consulting firm, uh, the Boston Consulting Group. And for this study, they wanted to see if like backing off, letting their consultants recover would you know, impact their performance, well-being, all that stuff. So in the consulting world, it's like you work all the time. You're always on the clock. Oh, You're always... 100 hour it, weeks. It's, yeah, it's yeah, brutal. It's brutal. So anyways, for this, this they did two studies, but for the, one, the first of 
one, they said, guess what? All of our consultants, we're going to, you're going to take one night off a week, just one night. So from 6 p.m. to when you go to sleep, whatever. Don't answer emails. Don't check your phone. Don't do blah, blah. Just one night is all they're asking. And these people worked all weekends as well. So you're asking one out of seven nights. And everyone like rebelled. And they're like, we can't do that. Like our clients are going to leave. They think, they're going to think we're going to, you know, let them down, blah, 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 blah. They all resisted. But they said, okay, we'll try this for, you know, whatever it is, the couple month time period. Well, what happened was they take one night off, their performance goes up, they become more efficient, their well-being goes up, and life satisfaction and all these other measures around like um, happiness and satisfaction, all that stuff go up. And then they moved it to like, you know, multiple nights and the same, like you had the same effect. It was like, boom, big, like, and people at first couldn't believe it. They're like, we're working less. But we're performing better, like all. And it wasn't just, hey, I'm rating my performance. It was how their client rated that performance group versus before the versus person also. giving them money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The person giving them money. So you're sitting here and it's like, well, you know, to us, it's like, no shit. Like, take it. To, you can't work all the time. But that same mindset and mentality that applies in like high performance business world applies in you know endurance world because we have the same thing instead of hours we have miles right it's how much can we accumulate how much time blah 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 etc cetera, etc cetera. and what happens is we be we come fearful that if we step away if we don't walk, work if we don't put in the the miles then we're not going to get the job done in our case we're not going to get better. But the reality is we're just like this those consultants. We've just become addicted to the work and fed this like crazy narrative without realizing it's about in our case in the running world, it's about what adaptations do you get out of the work? Not necessarily the amount or time spent doing the work. It's adaptation. And that, and in order to get that, you got to recover. That's right. That's right, Stephen. And this goes back to like, what is the minimum effective dosage for your athlete? Like people look at training of elite athletes and go, wow, they did all this volume and all these reps. I got to do that to get that good. Oh my goodness. No, no, no. They're at such a point where they have to do that much loading in order to get enough breakdown to then adapt from. So the beginner or the intermediate athlete, you should be thankful you only have to do five by a K to get enough damage to incur an adaptive response. Why would you want to spend more time creating more severe trauma and more exhaustion and more fatigued when you're not going to get more of a signal and then prolong the duration that you have to recover from that. It doesn't make any sense, but we are status-driven creatures and bigger is better. We often, this is the thing we have to, you know, check is our magnitude bias, right? Bigger is better. That is the magnitude bias, you know, big boobs. So women get augment, you know, breast augmentations, 
bigger bank accounts. So we just, you know, or stock prices. So stocks, you know, companies buy back their stock shares to fluff up their stock price, right? Bigger this, bigger everything, bigger, bigger, supersize me, you name it, right? We have a magnitude bias in the West, but it's, we need a, a Goldilocks bias, right? A just right. What is just right for this athlete at this time? And I was reminding an athlete of this the other day, they're like, oh, in order to get better, I got to run more miles. Like, no, I said, in order to get better, you need to absorb and adapt to the work you're doing. And we decided, hey, you need to have a mandatory rest day. And we should actually have a period, a more prolonged period of recovery or adaptation throughout your training cycle you know, inserted here. Cause it looks like your pattern is you can go really good for about two, two weeks of a lot of loading, but then, you know, the kind of like things start to unwind a little bit. And so we need to respect that the signals your body is giving you rather than say, Oh, I got to keep, keep pounding and keep pressing. Cause that's not the answer. And it's funny you brought up that, um, Boston consulting example, Steve, another example is actually comes from deliberate practice. Godfather, um, Erickson. And when they looked at the deliberate practice of amateur violinists and the deliberate practice of the kind of um, elite violinists, they noticed two different things. The amateur and elite violinists practice about the same, but the elite violinists practice in very focused segments throughout the day, 90 minute spurts, 90 minutes really focused, and then about two hours off. So 90 minutes, 90 minutes, 90 minutes, but then with these kind of recovery or rest periods, the um, less elite or kind of like marginal relative to the elite violinist uh, would practice for six hours straight. No recovery, just go. So when we think about the quality of practice, right, this segmented training or segmented practice tends to be where you get more effort and more bang for your buck versus just plopping it all down and getting it all down on one go. Even though we like the idea of just this really static, all right, I got an eight hour work day, six hour work day, eight hour school period. We're just going to do it all without any stoppage, right? And just kind of this Taylorism industrial complex mindset. When the reality is we work better in segments because we need to process and rebound from the exertion that we just put out. And so that's also why like, yeah, you give those consultants a day, a night just to recover and recoup, boom, they're gonna come back supercharged for like the next two days. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you know, it makes sense, but it's like- So hard to do. <laughs> it's so hard to do. And I think part of the reason it's so hard to do is we have these like, we have this narrative in our head that like, especially in the West, like success comes from hard work. Like if On we put grind. in hard we work, grind in the day. Yeah. Yeah. We get better. And that's like our cultural narrative. And it goes back. I mean, you can trace it back, Puritan, whatever work ethic, all that junk. Um, but it's so ingrained. And then you add in the endurance athletes who again, like natural tendency is to go towards that and who have seen payoff from increasing the workload because that's what you do in high school and through college, which 
you tend to get better, right? As you go from novice to like, oh crap, if I work harder, I get better. This is great. I'm just going to keep working harder. And that is true, especially early on. <laughs> but at, at, at some point, you hit this, this plateau and this adaptation, and it's like you can't do more. You've got to absorb the work that you're doing. And, you know, you see this, you see this all the freaking time in our sport. Um, when people get to a high level, then they plateau a little bit. Then it's like they double down. I mean, it's what I tried to do oh, as yeah. well. Uh-huh. You, you, you double down, you say, Oh crap, I must not be working hard enough because the narrative tells me if I'm not getting better, it's my fault because I'm not working hard enough. So I need to work harder. And then you just dig your soul self like this giant hole in your screw. Yeah. I mean, even Alan Webb at the end of his career with Jerry started running 140 mile weeks because he thought that was the thing. I got to double down. It did not work out well for him, as we all know. Yeah. But it's it's interesting we have that double down bias. Like, and that's the thing is understanding what the bias is, but then that your perception here is not necessarily reality because reality is the damage occurred. The breakdown happened. What is the building blocks, the raw materials that you're going to allow your body to be subject to, to rebuild itself? And that has to be the mindset is, is this cost benefit or this trade-off, you know, between breaking down and then rebuilding and time, you know, as they say, heals all wounds, but in this kind of like cycle of uh, adaptive reconstruction or, you know, periodization enhancement, we tend to compress things on artificial time horizons because they fit neatly into a seven day week. Or, you know, we have this race and this race and this race, and we want to feel a sense of control that we've done the n- enough work to then allow us permission to race at this level because we create this inverse correlation between someone did these temple runs or these workouts at these paces, and then they ran at this. Then they ran a race at this pace. So that must mean in order to run a race at this pace, you got to do these amount of loads and volumes and intensities for this long at that, at at that level. And it's kind of like we said, that's not precision. It's a rough fuzzy ballpark. Like we kind of understand the ballpark, but it's not as razor point as some people make it out to be de facto. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I think it's, we're fooled by this, you know, this desire or something of certainty, right? Where A plus, you know, A plus B equals C. Yeah. And we get taught that that's the answer, but that's not actually what happened. (laughs) Because when you get to physics, you got letters and numbers, man. And you're like, what? Wait. Yeah, you're like. Now there's the numbers in math, huh? (laughs) What in the world is going on here so you know i what i want to what i'd like to get into maybe is how okay we've talked about the problem we've set the stage the problem is this we understand our underlying bias towards it we understand you know you're listening you understand the value of you know rest recovery clearing out the fatigue so you can express or absorb and express your ability 
how do we incorporate this? How do we move this into our, our normal stuff? And I'm, I, uh, I'll start with the down week, and then I'm curious how, how you utilize it um, in your, your training. And I, I do it in, in, in two, I, I call it, the way I do it is, is twofold. First, I look at the athlete or the groups and I say, hey, what is this person's recoverability generally? Because some people are more or less tolerant to things, to workloads. And I say, during this period, what is their recoverability? Meaning that some people bounce back really well from, let's say, long aerobic stuff, but not very well from high acidosis stuff. And other people are vice versa. Okay. Right. So you're trying, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, you're trying to say, hey, what what kind of person am I bringing into the into the fold? You know, what kind of person am I, am I training? And then from there, I use that information to give myself essentially a time horizon. Right. How frequently am I predicting roughly that they need a down week? And that varies a whole hell of a lot during, depending on the person and the, and the, uh, the uh, you know, what training period is. Once I've got this idea, let's just say it's once every, I don't know, four weeks. We'll keep it simple. Or once every month. Okay, great. In my training plan, I make note of that. But I don't necessarily don't like to schedule it in. Because what I like to do is be responsive. So I make note of the down week, how often I think we'll need it. But then I save it in my back pocket until it seems like, you know what, we need a down week. But the flip side of that is I also don't press things. If they don't look like they need a down week and we've made it a month, maybe I go one more week. But then I just stick it in there anyways because I'm like, you know what? Better safe than sorry. I'm not going to press this streak. We've made it past my quote unquote prediction. Fine. Good. I was I was off a little bit, but let's stick it in there. On the flip side, if I thought it would be once a month and here I am getting to week three and I'm like, you know what? The last couple of weeks were really, tr- were really hard and they're, they're, they're not looking, they're not recovering as, as good as I thought. Guess what? Recovery week goes in that week right there like time to bounce back time to absorb so it's kind of like you need to have in my mind i need to have it somewhere in there with an idea of how frequently because if i don't i know i'm going to succumb to my natural bias of like oh things are great like let's keep training 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 so i gotta have that reminder in there but then i gotta have the flexibility to like pull it out early and be like, you know what, down week, let's go. Like, even if we got once quote unquote scheduled the next week, you know what, you don't need it then, you need it now. Like, let's get on it, recover, get back to, you know, normal. I like that adaptive, uh, you know, mindset, Steve. I like the be able to respond in real time because that that is valuable when you have a really high degree of communication and consistency where you can monitor someone almost daily, right? And you can start to see the trends. But sometimes it's tough. Like 
whether if you're coaching remotely or, you know, you don't see the athlete every day, or maybe you don't, you only communicate with them, you know, sporadically for whatever reason. So then it's like, all right, well, now what do we do? Um, and for me, I think my narrative is a shift in bias, right? When I was a younger coach, I definitely had a, a work and training bias where it's like, we got to get the more work in. We got to do it. We, oh man, we got, we got exposure to like threshold things. And then we got exposure to neural things. And we got exposure to these things. Oh my, there's just so many things we have to expose you to, right? Because we tend to forget when we're young or new to something that it's a holistic thing with many, many components. And some are really essential and some are not, right? There is no magic secret workout thing. Like this isn't the answer or that isn't the key. You know, and we tend to think in those reductionist terms when we're younger or, you know, a little bit more novice in our profession because that's what's happened is like people break apart the whole, look at the individual elements and then try to reconstruct or better, reconstruct a better understanding of the whole. And so we all tend to think like that when we're initially exposed to something. It's that sophomoric intelligence where it's like you're pretty naive still. You have a little bit of knowledge, but it's really dangerous because what you do know, you like have put all your faith in. <laughs> As I was going to say there, I think I think you're spot on, you know, so it's you're spot on on um, on like understanding where your bias is when you're young. So yeah, just keep going. What, as you got older, where, how did your bias shift? Then my bias shift towards a, I realized it was an under recovery bias, right? So I became a lot more liberal with prescribing recovery or deleting um, sets or reps in plan, pre-planned workouts. Like if someone was doing something, let's say six by a mile, at 5k pace with four meter jog. And it was just a real struggle by like rep four, like too much of a struggle. I'd be like, Hey, you know what? Workouts done. Or I'd create something new. Okay. Let's do 400s at 5k pace and see how that feels. Let's still get the stimulus in, but let's manufacture it in a different way because you're exerting way, way, way too much effort than I desired and getting way too much breakdown too early when really what we're trying to do in a workout, right, depending on the period, is get to a point where we're just getting just enough breakdown so that the time period you have afterwards, whether it's a day or two days or what have you, is just enough time for you to rebuild so we can go do that breakdown again. And that's where the themes or periodization or training schemes, like say that Canova offers, and that helped, you know, when I was initially exposed to that, really helped reshape my paradigm, which now it's like when you hear someone do a workout, it might be really impressive, the, the sets and reps and volume of it. But the question you have to ask is, when are they doing it? And when we think about periodization, right, I'm always moving from a general to developmental to specific to performance. That's the general direction. That's the direction we are trying to move an athlete through the a periodization uh, scheme. So in the general period, it's all fatigue all the time because it's just it's just general work. So yeah, you should all be tired. Doesn't really matter. It's all effort based. We study the effort. No big deal. The developmental period is when we're getting more fatigued in a more specific direction, but still kind of this quasi general nature as we're stabilizing those new things we introduce in the general period. 
Then the specific period, we're getting fatigued and breaking down in a very, very specific way that is conducive to towards their racing um, uh, ability in, for that specific event. So when you hear about workouts in those periods, it's like, well, yeah, that's the amount of work that that coach and that athlete decided they needed to do to create enough breakdown to then create enough rebuilding to create a, a positive adaptive construction. It's when I hear about periods or workouts in the performance period when the goal is zero to little to almost no fatigue, almost zero to little no breakdown. That's when you get scared. Like, you know, when you hear about Sebco doing eight times 300 at 38 to 36 with 45 seconds rest in the performance period, in the race period, weeks before, or La Severian doing 20 times 200 at 27 to 25 with, you know, 30 seconds rest three, four weeks out before the Olympic 10K. That's when you go, uh-oh, <laughs> that person is really fit because they're doing, they're not doing that workout to create a lot of breakdown. That, that's what they can do without, with minimal amount of breakdown. And that's what we're trying to move the athlete towards, right? And so when you think about what Canova brings to the table, he's like, yeah, just we're training the physiology. We're going to do 10 by a K and three minutes, 320, 330, 340, pfft, don't care. Because you're, that's the highly damaging period. But when you get that, that specific period and you become more pace sensitive, you know, like if it's three minutes or three minutes, because as you move more towards the performance period, you want the work you're doing to incur less and less of a breakdown and have more of consolidation in nature. And so if we're in, let's say, the specific or performance period, and I start to see a lot of breakdown happen in the session, I pull the plug quick, real quick. Because it's like, no, 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 we don't, we don't want this breakdown because we got a race in two weeks. You got a race this weekend. But if I'm in the general or developmental period, it's just like, yeah, go smash your head against the wall. It's fine. Don't care. Like, don't care. <laughs> you got to get the work. Like, I'm like, you got to get the work in. I don't care. Just, just do it. <laughs> so it shifted based on my compass and orientation where I am. But now my general model is essentially this is my starting point, and then we adapt to the athlete and their response and time horizons of recovery needs as, as needed. But in general, everyone starts out with one week. Week one's the loading week where we introduce intensities. Week two is a stabilizing week where we stabilize their familiarity with that intensity and that load. Then week three is the adaptive week, right? That's the down week. And then we come back after that week three to week four to the consolidation week where we revisit the workloads and intensities that we were subjecting the person to in week one and week two and saying, okay, in this fourth week, this consolidation week, can you now perform similar workouts at a similar level of output with less breakdown and less fatigue? And if that's the case, then boom, we move forward to another four-week loading period where we introduce something new and so on and so forth. But if it's not the case, if it's just as hard, harder as it was in the stabilizing or intensity weeks that preceded it, we go back the following week into another adaptive week, another down week. So it's kind of like a choose your own adventure based on how the athlete's mm -hmm. handling that load in that cons consolidation week. I then make a decision to go into the next cycle and bump you up, so to speak. Or go back down and say, well, well, clearly you didn't do the workloads that, you know, that you were familiar with 
after you're supposed to adapt and it's supposed to get stronger. So now we need to go adapt some more, which means more recovery. So now it's a under recovery bias. I assume the athletes under recovered unless they can demonstrate otherwise through the amount of work they're doing and how quote unquote easy or how minimal the damage is uh, with that workload. I love it. I mean, I think that that's 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 a a a great approach there. You know, as I sit here and think about I'm listening to your, you know, damage and absorb and all that stuff. I'm sorry I'm going to go here for listeners, but hang with me. All I can think about and this is probably because of our, our the times we live in is it's just like a vaccine in your immune system. Because it's like you get the vaccine, you get quote unquote damage, not really, but you you might get like your immune system kicks on and you might feel a little groggy and you might get a little bit of a fever and your intention is like, oh my gosh, the vaccine got me sick. No, that's your immune system adapting to the stressor, right? And then guess what? You don't, after you get the vaccine, you don't immediately say, great, I'm now vaccinated. I can go out in the world and I'm a, I can deal with everything. No. What do they tell you? Hey, you got to wait, wait about two weeks until, until you, then, then your immune system will be ready. Why do we say wait until about two weeks or so? Simple. Because you've got rec- to adapt, recover, absorb. And then you're ready and your your defenses are up. It's the same shit with the workouts, right? It's the same kind of model. Same deal. So, again, I hate going to the vaccine side uh, to explain things. But the reason I think that's important is because the body adapts to stressors. And yes, specific ways. But there's a general adaptation that that we flow through, right? And and whether we're our immune systems adapting or our muscles or our cardiovascular system, the time horizons are different, but the ebb and flow follows the same pattern. And I think knowing that ebb and flow, then you need to know, just like you said, John, just like I talked about, where is your bias? Right? Where is your bias? Is it overworking, undertraining, et cetera, et cetera? Not to give down weeks, not to give recovery, to grind away. Where's your bias? And then you've got to put things in your training and your coaching and your workouts to like combat that bias. Because just like we talked about, you know, a couple weeks ago on this podcast where we talked about cognitive biases, right? where we sat and we broke down how they interfered and how you have to prepare yourself because you know what? We've all got cognitive biases. You can't just know it and then be like, oh, great. Here's a cognitive bias. Guess what? It affects you because you're human nature. You're human. So you got to just prepare and be, you know, be ready so that you know, oh, yeah, this bias exists. I'm going to fall for this. Um, I've just got to be ready, you know, to inure myself against it. Same thing happens here when we look at recovery, 
training load. It's the same bias when we looked at whether we like intervals or distance stuff or sprinting or VO2 max, whatever we've been trained on in favor, we have a bias towards that. So in this case, all you're trying to do is bias against or to, sorry, all you're trying to do is to try and create some space so that you can deal with that bias and create reminders so that you know, hey, this is where I tend to go. So I'm just going to plan this or keep this in here or keep this front of mind so that when my tendency is to work, 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 I've got this down week in there that says, oh, wait, that's right. I like to work people into the ground. I need to have this thing or else I'm not absorbing and adapting. Or on the flip side, your bias is under recovery, then so forth and so forth. Steve getting feisty, talking about vaccines. Love it. You, you know, I'm, it's just been a long time and you should I'm not, not going to go down that. But you should not be apologistic for that because the vaccines, any vaccine is just basic biology, right? This politicalization and disinformation about these things is very unfortunate, but it's just biology doesn't care what you think. Biology is biology. It's how we freaking adapt to workouts. I'm sorry. I'm going, I'm going off, but you know, you know what, you know what is great. Okay. Renato Canova put out this wonderful book. It's more like a pamphlet, right? The scientific approach to the marathon. Okay, it's like a hundred pages. There's some typos in there because it was translated, but it's it's a brilliant, brilliant book. Okay. And if you go to like one of the early pages where he talks about training and adaptation, what example does he use? He uses vaccine and getting immunized. Like th- that's the example Canova uses to explain how training adaptation occurs. Why does he use that example? Because it's the same shit, essentially. Stimulus applied, a specific stimulus, your body responds in a general and specific way so that it becomes stronger so that it can deal with that. Same thing in workouts. So what do we need? If we're going crazy on intervals and you're saying it's the general prep and we're saying smash yourself, what are we doing? We're applying a very high stimulus and then we need time and recovery to absorb that stimulus, you know, and we might feel a little feverish or, or, you know, our muscles might ache or whatever. That's just the sign of the stimulus applied. That's not evil. That's just the sign of the stimulus applied. And if we give enough time and space, we recover, we adapt, we grow stronger. It's the same shit. It's unfortunate we need a soapbox for something so empirical and so fundamental to life. I mean, y- you know, I, I think I'm going to go find the Canova book. I'm going to take a picture of it and be like, this is my this is my pamphlet for vaccines. <laughs> So any any coach should read it just because it it's the perfect example. But anyways, I mean, but um, that also brings, you know, a larger thing kind of steering us back towards training is our biases tend to be where understanding stops. 
And that's the important import of continuing education, right? It's why we create the scholar program. It's why we have the clubhouse. It's why we have all these resources because we are always continuing our education. But the source in, of the education and content and information is key too, right? We live, unfortunately, in an age where the populist mindset, the intuitive mindset, which typically is wrong, is becoming more and more easily accessible. You used to have the charlatans who went around stole snake oil, you know, city by city, who create who cater to this concept of fantastical magical thinking that if I can't explain a phenomena, it must be some wild and crazy thing. And so yeah, that seems somewhat plausible because it's wild and crazy and it's very fantastical. But that caters to like our inner child, right? And we tell kids these fantasy stories and things when they're young. But as we grow up, like we have to become stewards of reality. And being a steward of reality means you are continuing to seek out understanding about how the world actually works, not how you want to work. And that's why science, the scientific method, is so tough. Because you're wrong most of the time. Your hypothesis is wrong. Because <laughs> the evidence, and that's tough because now you have to create cognitively coping mechanisms with being wrong because being wrong means can I trust myself can I can do I have control you you have to start to have this doubt right but the, the being wrong just means all right I just found out a way it doesn't work right it's that Thomas Edison mindset I figured out 10,000 ways that light bulbs didn't work and so that's why I was able to figure out how light bulbs work that's the scientific method right that's the experimenter Canova will say this, you know, all coaches will say this is, you know, it's this experiment. And we tend to glean towards coaches who have a system because we assume early on they experimented and had a lot of lack of success or maladaptation in their athletes. And through enough error, trial and error with the early athletes, they came to a better system that had a more accurate predictability and that their hypothesis was more aligned with the actual results. And that works depending on your athlete population level. This is why we have that podcast where it's like, you shouldn't train like a pro if you're not a pro. You shouldn't extrapolate or, you know, kind of um, lower the percentage of volume and intensity for your athlete if they're a frosh, frosh high school runner or even JV high school runner, or even varsity high school runner. If you read about something on some article of what Kinesi Bekele did, to get fit. Like there's, there, it's, it's a, the, the chasm is too steep. It's just too big of a Canyon between the two high schools are training like high schoolers, middle schoolers are training like middle schoolers, college athletes are training like college athletes, your immediate peer group and what they're doing with a similar athlete population is the better informant rather than jumping up three or four clicks to the, the most elite of the elite. And we, but we tend to glamorize that outlier, that elite person go, Oh, the younger Britons are doing all this. Oh, you know, oh, Centrowitz did this to win this. Oh, this is what Chris Zielinski did. Okay, I got to do some of that. And it's this hubris that like we're in the same ballpark as these, you know, freaks of nature and outliers <laughs> that we can even begin to like do things similar to them, expect a similar return. It's just that they're immediately available because it's clickbait. It's like, oh, what's the best of the best doing? I'll just copy and paste and remanufacture that for my own, you know, guises. But it rarely, if ever, works. It's just a hint at what could one could do at really high levels. But this is why Vern Gambetta, Dan Path, 
like a lot of like the, the, the really, you know, intelligent um, stewards of coaching education talk about get better at the basics because 99.9% of us are going to work with athletes who just need to get better at the basics. Very rarely, Steve and I have been blessed at times to work with some freaks. And those are really tricky problems for different reasons. But most of the athletes I still work with today and have worked with in the past, and Steve as well, have just been normal people who just need to get better at the fundamentals. Yep. And and I think that, you know, that distinction is so important. And to tie this back to down weeks, there are people who are freaks of nature who recover like no other, whose power is to recover. I mean, that's Alan Webb at the height of his career, right? Oh, yes. But even then, we got to remember, after the epic 20 by quarter with the last one at 50, what do you do the next day? Day off. Day of nothing. (laughs) Day off. Day off. Day off. So, but, you know, that's, that's, that's the key there. And that's often where I think the down week kind of gets a bad rap is because we pull from the elites of the elites and often they have more wiggle room, right? In terms of their recovery and often have gotten there because they are freaks of nature in terms of recovery. And also their lifestyle is set up for recovery. Like let's remember the NBA lockout um, playoff period tournament in Florida, right? At at Disney in 2020 because of the army lockdown because of the pandemic. That was like actually a really entertaining playoff because all they did was they lived in the hotel. They went to the basketball court and played. They went back to the hotel, back and forth, back and forth. No flying, no like up at up until 3 a.m. flying into the next city, like no travel, no nothing. And all the NBA players were like, we love this. We feel great. And the play was energetic. The play was like it was some of the best NBA basketball I've seen in a long, long time. <laughs> Yeah, because they were covered like they didn't have to do anything else but play games. No travel. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a different ball game when you're going to school all day. Or you got work work or you got a newborn or even just kids or whatever. Yeah. You know, all those stressors impact things. And that's where you have to take that into consideration. And the higher often the higher the external stressors away from the track or running or whatever the more you have to create wiggle room on like down weeks and stuff, because like here's, here's, and there's, there's been research studies behind this that show if your life stressors are through the roof, even if your athletic stressors are quote unquote manageable or normal or not that hard, you won't freaking adapt. Like you don't get better. If, if cortisol is through the roof chronically because of like life stressors, you don't adapt. You don't see gains in strength or endurance or whatever have you. And that's, that's my message, right? That's it. Like it, it, it's like clear as day in the research and clear as day in, in performance, but we often neglect it. And often we sit there and sometimes we're like, well, their training's not that hard. Well, you know, what do they do? How's their life? Or as, you know, a good friend and coaching colleague 
who um, Jim Bevan, who coaches at at Rice University, a very very um, tough academic university. Their women made nationals this year, and every year he'd tell me, "Steve, it's finals week. We're not practicing." <laughs> and he'd be like, he'd "Be like, when I was young, I tried to practice, but then I realized." It was useless because we got nothing out of it. Athletes were dead and would come out of it looking like shit for several weeks on end. So we're just not practicing as much, you know. Everyone, we're just not practicing. Yeah. We're just that's it's that's you just take it for what it is. Well, even Mike Smith noticed the same thing when he went from coaching at Georgetown to NAU. He'd be like, "Dude, Marcus, like these kids in flag stuff, they don't have a care in the world. It's life's just easy breezy. Like they just boom." like adapt to things overnight when he was at Georgetown though, again, really rigorous academic spot. It was not quite as cut and dry and straightforward. And I remember too, like, you know, if you compete in the Ivy leagues at HEPs, that was your Super Bowl. Like that was, a, that was it. We actually valued HEPs more higher than NCAs. Why? Because the playing field was level. <laughs> Everyone had to take 20 credits a term everyone had to like stay up till like 3 a.m. regularly just to get all the homework and reading and assignments done. We felt like, and we would talk about this as athletes in this back in the 2000s, like, all right, we finally have a level playing field, you know, because we understood implicitly the impact of the academic rigors and stress we were subject to in that environment might have not been the same as someone who was at a state school and who could have a little bit more wiggle room to take five years for the undergraduate when you had to graduate in four years or else at the Ivy because that was really big to them, right? And so it created a lot more pressure and a lot more load globally that you just was inescapable. Exactly. And that's it's it's just a reality that we all have to deal with to a degree. So, but understanding that, allows you to deal with it and And that's why the copycat method especially when you're looking at elite athletes and you're like oh this is the key this is what they do it's like no they're sitting like it's it's the if you talk to anyone who's been to east africa or kenya or whatever no it's the sitting down on the couch with doing nothing but drink tea in between for hours, yeah. you know? That's a big, big essential ingredient. I remember I was at Prefontaine, you know, I was actually, I think it was a year I sat down and had lunch and talked with Canova for like three hours at Pre. But I remember going in to go have lunch and talk with him. And I saw Aspel Kiprop just sitting on his balcony, literally staring at the sun. Like he wasn't, no phone, no nothing. He was just chilling on the balcony, sitting down. Three hours later, I come out. The guy hadn't moved. (laughs) Wasn't playing a card game. Wasn't no phone, no TV, no music, no nothing. He legitimately was just sitting. This time, actually, you know, his legs were up on, you know, a little uh, ottoman or something, right? It was just like, wow, for three hours, this guy didn't move. (laughs) But it goes back to muscle tension, right? So, like, when we're training, we're creating a lot of muscle tension, you know, through eccentrics, through triphasic periods of eccentric, isometric, you know, concentric, and the ways we're engaging that, right? And this goes back to Steve's concept of what are your muscle tension days, right? And what's the pattern of that? Studies have shown that 
sleep isn't necessarily the thing that creates repair and recovery for muscle tissues. Sleep's the thing that more creates repair and recovery for the brain and release of cerebral spinal fluids, et cetera. What creates repair and recovery for muscle tissues is a relaxed state, no tension. You could just lay down and not move in a bed or on the floor for four hours. And that's a very similar environment to sleep for the muscle tissue because they're just not being asked to tense up, right? I mean, what is an injury or a muscle strain? It's an overly tense tissue. It's They're called soft tissues. <laughs> so they need to be soft, right? If we give them that space to be soft and repair, well, yeah, you can then double or maybe triple. But if your job is to then go and, you know, teach kids, be up and down, moving around, you know, getting that little, you know, third grader in or working in an environment where you're up on your feet all day for eight hours. That's a lot of extra tension in the system that's being applied, even though it's very low grade tension, it's still from the accumulation of tension more than like, say, these other elite athletes are doing. So if you're doing a long run of 18 miles, and then you're up on your feet for eight hours at your work, the cumulative tension is very high there, probably more than actually these elites. And that's, I think, what we're bad at and why the adaptive or downweek is so important because we're really bad at kind of getting a correct understanding of the cumulative load and the culmination of week after week at 80 miles, right? The, I mean, we call it, we track it in a week period, but like your body doesn't know a week from a, you know, necessarily a month. It just knows habituation and of loading and then also deloading right and so that's why like with my paradigm like that first week that intensive week that introduction week the in general the load is at three quarters or 75 percent of the total load intensity and volume right the stabilization week is then when we bump it up to the the hundred percent that's the maximum we i think okay this is the amount we want to really create a strong, strong signal so we can get a lot of damage and a lot of reconstruction, provided that the next week then goes down to two-thirds of the load. And then we go back, like I said, to the consolidation week at 100% again. And if you can manage that 100% load for that week that you you know, were subject to two weeks prior in the stabilization week better, then yeah, we can move on to the next. But if you can't, boom, back down two-thirds. And you look at that and let's say we're just running 100 miles a week to make it easy. 75 miles the first week, 100 miles the next week, 65 miles the, the you know, the down week, 100 miles again. You go, but that, but huh? That make people's heads hurt. How? No. Like, but you look at that. I mean, that's a lot of work in a four-week period. It's just you periodize or undulate it appropriately so that the organism could actually absorb it and could actually get better from it rather than just say, hey, you know what we'll do? Burp, 75 miles every week for four weeks straight. No, no change. That's probably not the better, the best approach because it leads to a, a cumulative unraveling, a cumulative micro-damaging that becomes a macro-damaging that becomes a cumulative under-recovery syndrome versus it actually the positive general adaptation syndrome we want. Spot on. I I think all right. So we've we've covered a lot in this podcast. We tend to yes. We talked about vaccines. We, we, it's great. 
we we have covered we have got run the gamut and if i think of what's the takeaway we started with stress and adaptation and it is reviewing and reminding yourself of that understanding where your bias goes towards is it towards overtraining is it towards under recovering where's your bias at and then figuring out a system or a method that works for you to deal with your bias so that you have consistent, regular, down weeks in there as both preventative, but also, more importantly, restorative mm-hmm. to make sure that you keep adapting in the right direction. It, and it's, it, it's almost like it, in today's world... And in our distance running world, it takes like courage to take the down week. Yeah, especially with all of it being gamified in public, right? I mean, if your your GPS, your little like heart rate, you know, variable monitor, whatever, right, will beep at you and be like, you didn't meet your goal. You didn't meet your steps. You didn't meet your miles. What's wrong with you? And it's like, nothing's wrong. It's training. <laughs> <laughs> this is a training process. <laughs> yes, don't don't listen to the algorithm. No. Because I mean that's made for the average the gamification is made for the the person who has trouble getting out the door. Most, you know, competitive people don't have that trouble, right? They have trouble resting because they think someone somewhere is working harder than you right now and it's like so so and I think the it's also, yeah, you have to have the heuristic too about when and where the higher low, like I always just think of breakdown and rebuild, breakdown and rebuild, workouts break down, periods of rest and recovery rebuild. Do you have enough rebuilding to support the amount of breakdown that you subject that person to or that athlete to? And so that's, whenever you write a workout, you go, okay, I don't just write a workout and that's the easy part. All right, we're going to do, let's go. 10 times a quarter, real fast. Gonna be a lot of fun. Well, great. You gotta also think, okay, we did this. How much breakdown at this time for this athlete does that is my hypothesis, does it incur? And how much uh, you know, rebuild period am I gonna give them afterwards? How much do I think? And so that's why having those periodization paradigms of general, developmental, you know specific and performance, which we've called our things in the past, but I try to get crisper every time I talk about them is in the general development, a lot of breakdown, not that much rebuild. But as we move closer to the performance period, almost zero to no breakdown. And all we're doing is just having basically rebuild an expression of fitness. And so if you're in the specific and performance period for that athlete, and you're breaking them down, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Because we shouldn't be having much breakdown. The workloads that we are subjecting to at this time have little to no breakdown. This is why, you know, people do one of two things, right? Classically taper or back off to ensure there's no breakdown. Or they do say what, you know, Mike does at AU with his athletes, just maintain the homeostatic normal. Like if you're used to running 70 miles a week, and a 10 mile run on whatever, you know, on a Wednesday, keep it up because it's like you've demonstrated throughout this whole period of training and development that now this stress no longer creates any breakdown. It's, it's homeostatic. 
And so that's always like the, the key is figuring out what are you trying to graduate people to become homeostatic? Or if you can't or they can't as a coach or an athlete have the wherewithal to stay within themselves as a lot of young enthusiastic athletes don't, then purposely backing them down, whether it's in a taper or in a deload week, to ensure they're getting the rebuilding they need, the period of rebuilding they need to actually respond in the direction you want to the training they're subject to. I couldn't have summarized it better. I think that's spot on. Learn your stress and adaptation. Learn your cycle. Maybe understand vaccines a little bit. Sorry. And, you know, I'm going to go check out that Canova book. It'll be good for your training, good for your biology knowledge as well. And thank you once again for listening. Um, tangents and all, we tr- try to provide value. This is what the people want, Steve, and that's what we do here. We give them what they want. That's right. So thanks for listening. Check out the Running Scholar Program. Join the clubhouse. Get involved. We go deep on there on all of these things in all of our courses. So check it out. Thanks for listening. Until next time.